0: Well, welcome to uh, a time in the Word of God on what is probably for uh, most of you a wet and uh, cold uh, time outside, but we're grateful to have technology to be able to still join together around the Word of God, and we want to do that this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your copies of God's Word with you there, if you'd open them up to the 11th chapter of Matthew, as we come to a passage this morning that talks to us and gives us incredible insight about the heart of Christ. There are 89 chapters in the four Gospels uh, that are spread across all four, and they give us a lot of information about Christ. Dane Ortland says this, quote, "...we learn much in the four Gospels about Christ's teaching. We read of His birth, His ministry, His disciples. We're told of His travels and prayer habits." We find lengthy speeches and repeated objections by his hearers, prompting further teaching. We learn of the way he understood himself to fulfill the whole of the Old Testament. We learn in all four accounts of his unjust arrest and shameful death and astonishing resurrection. But in only one place, perhaps the most wonderful words ever uttered by human lips, do we hear Jesus himself open up to us his very heart, end quote. That place is our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 through 30, and it's our focus as we come back to our study of this gospel. This is where Jesus says, beginning in verse 25, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. and my burden is light. Here you have the heart of Jesus described by Jesus himself, and it's really a remarkable description by Jesus' own testimony. He is gentle. He is lowly. He is what we might call tender. He's welcoming. He's understanding. He's eager to receive any and all who come seeking rest, all who are burdened and heavy laden. And he promises that he alone is the one who is able to give rest to these because he's the only one who has a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. Now, this statement is remarkable, not only because of his content, but also because of the context in which we find it, because he's describing this overwhelmingly welcoming heart, this overwhelmingly gentle heart, right after having described, if you remember, the rejection of all of these cities, all these places where he had been doing his ministry. It's a period of widespread resistance, widespread uh, rejection as Jesus ministered to these towns all up and down the northeast coast of uh, the Sea of Galilee for the last probably two years. He had been ministering, he had been healing everywhere he went, bringing restoration to mangled bodies, joy to people who had seen their loved ones suffer for years, relief to families and homes and communities, in a few cases even bringing people back to life who had died. And yet despite all of this, those who truly understand and accept Jesus, at the end of that two-year span, would really only be just a few dozen people. Thousands, really uh, multiple thousands of people ultimately would walk away from Him. It is in some ways a baffling response, incomprehensible level of resistance and hardness to His mercy and truth. And yet Jesus' response to this rejection is not total retaliation and reprisal, It is, in fact, a heart of sorrow and weeping. He pronounces woe over cities that have rejected him that really came out of a heart of sorrow and warning for the judgment that they're going to face for that kind of rejection. And a heart here, ultimately, that still yearns to lift them from the burdens that they're carrying, the weariness of life that they're facing. This is a picture of the heart of Christ that, that has faced and, um, and experienced profound hatred and rejection and dismissal, and yet it is not overcome by that rejection. In fact, it faces the rejection, it faces the resistance, it faces the indifference, it faces the lack of love, and all of those things and continues with overwhelming grace and humility. And what he's doing in these verses is really articulating for you and me a tremendous perspective when he faces this kind of rejection, a grace that is demonstrated in the face of rejection in two really profound ways. And we want to look at those this morning. The first, in verses 25 through 27, we might simply say is uh, Jesus revealing truth to those who are lacking in wisdom. He's revealing truth to those who are lacking in wisdom. This is one of the expressions of His grace and His kindness. Matthew says that it was at that time that Jesus made this declaration uh, what time is he talking about? At that same time, when he had just given this warning about judgment, this warning about the day of God's wrath coming against them, that it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, more tolerable than Sodom for these, uh, than, than for these cities. He warned them because they had become so resistant to his mercy and his acts of grace and kindness. They had been so blessed because of what God had done among them that their accountability would be great. But even with those warnings, even with all of that uh, tremendous mercy, even with all of that revelation that had been given to them, they hardened their hearts, they stiffened their necks, they turned against him. And yet instead of becoming embittered, instead of becoming exasperated, here he is, still with this amazing, beautiful declaration that comes first and foremost in the form of a prayer, a prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God the Father. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This is really an acknowledgement of if you want to say the darkness, if the, the 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 lack of understanding, the ignorance, the hardness of heart, the callousness of those who had resisted him, it's an acknowledgement that while many many would remain in that level of indifference and dismissiveness, yet still there are a few who had responded, a few who would respond. These are the ones to whom God has revealed certain things, these things. They, that God has opened their eyes. He's filled them with understanding. He's given them insight, particularly insight into, into himself and into Christ. And there are basically two features of, of the way that God has done this that motivates Christ in a, in a word of praise and or, or prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God. The first is the nature of those who have been given this insight. It's not, he says, the wise and understanding. That is to say, it's not those who pride themselves in their understanding of the world. It's not those who believe that they have the perception, the awareness, the insight to make sense out of not only the world around them, but their own life. Those who go through life believing that they have Uh, the answers, or at least believing that they can find the answers in their own resources. It's not those who have come to understand the things that are necessary to understand. It's not those who comprehend God and comprehend him correctly. Jesus is praising God for his plan, which ultimately bypasses all of that human pride and, and deals a blow, if you will, against that human pride, which is really the chief cause of the suffering and the condemnation of man. But God's glory and God's great blessing is that He has eclipsed all of this glory and all of this uh, boasting, uh, excuse me, yeah, eclipsed all of this pride and all this boasting in humankind and revealed these things to children. He revealed these things to infants, not not a reference to their physical age or stature, but really picturing children in the sense of those who are totally dependent on others. That's what a child is. They're someone who can't speak for themselves. They can't feed themselves. They have no skill. They have no resources to care for themselves. They have no knowledge. They come into this world knowing nothing. They have to learn everything from, from, uh, from others. So he praises God that these gospel truths have been known not by those who uh, are walking around in their well-educated, uh, intellectually respectable sophistication, erudition, or whatever it might be. He, he praises God that these truths have been known not by those who boast in human pride, but those who have renounced human pride. And, and his praise is that this is God's plan of salvation is so designed as to be undermining to this essential pride of man that is behind all sin. Because salvation, a salvation that doesn't deal with that pride is no salvation at all. A salvation that offers Uh, men and women, an eternal life, and eternity with God, but leaves them in that same sort of hubris, that same sort of pride is no salvation at all. It leaves them in their sin and in the cause of their sin. Salvation that made room for man to boast would leave man in the very pride that led to his initial downfall. It was a pride that was the first blemish on God's perfect creation. It was Satan's pride that was fundamental to the fall, not only of him, but the corruption of all the angels who went with him. It was pride which Satan used to tempt Adam and Eve to believe that they could become like God. It was essentially pride that was uh, at the root of everything, that opposed God and plunged all of His creation into corruption. And it was the outcome and the result of all of this pride, Satan's pride, that God set out to reverse with his great plan of redemption. The plan of redemption was essentially an onslaught against not only Satan's pride, but the pride of humanity. And so Jesus is just taking a moment to step back and to praise God for this plan that completely undermines all of that. It undermines man's wisdom, it undermines God's uh, man's pride. In God's wisdom, he devised a plan of salvation that both saves man from his sin and at the same time demonstrates the futility of man's thoughts. It demonstrates the total inability of man's, uh, of man's intellect, man's resources, man's philosophy. In the end, God's chief aim in all of this is ultimately not the exaltation of man, the exaltation of his pride. Really, it's not even ultimately the blessing of man, but ultimately it is God's glory. This is what Paul tells us over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, that not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise according to the flesh have been called, but God has chosen that which is weak. God has chosen that which is ignoble. All of these things, he says, was God's doing. And he does all this, he says, at the very end of that chapter, so that let the one who boast, boast in the Lord. All of this, all of this plan of salvation is ultimately resounding to God's glory. And that's what it's meant to do. It is meant to debase your pride and your self-sufficiency and it is meant to exalt God's wisdom and God's grace. So this is the first feature that Jesus sort of focuses on here. The first feature, if you will, that causes him to give praise to God for the way that he's bringing about this salvation on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. He recognizes that even with all of this rejection, that God's plan is working its way out exactly the way that it would that He would want it to. It would have been grieving to to, to Jesus to have people coming and claiming to be followers of God and yet holding on to that kind of hubris and pride and intellectual self sufficiency. And so He exalts God. He praises God. He gives thanks to God that although there is all this rejection, all of this is still continuing to, if you will, to, uh, to uh, further confirm the wisdom and the grace of God that he's doing it in this way. But there's a second feature that also motivates his praise and his thanksgiving. And that's the sovereign election of God in all of this. He says in verse 26, Yes, Father, such was your gracious will. This was your plan. It was pleasing in your sight. Even when all these people are rejecting you, it's not a sign that you've lost control. It's not a sign that somehow you're weak. It's not a sign that somehow you're failing. It's another reminder that, in fact, things are working out exactly the way that you had planned. You've chosen, he says, to hide these things from the proud. You've chosen to leave them in the darkness. ESV doesn't translate the word eudokia here, but it's the word pleased. It pleases you. It pleases God to do it exactly this way. These are the things that give God delight to see human pride exposed, to see human pride debased in this way. It pleases God that the proud find the truth hidden from them. And it pleases God that those who come to know the truth are those who renounce their trust in their own understanding. You might expect that with all this rejection, with all this resistance, with all this animosity, that Jesus would be frustrated, that he would be wringing his hands, that he'd be full of anxiety and despair. But instead, he's praising God even for those who are missing the truth because he recognizes that they're clinging to their pride and that would not be honoring to God if they came to God with that pride. He understands that God is doing all these things and He's doing them the right way and all of it is bringing delight to Him. He goes even further in verse 27, explaining it this way, all things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So now Jesus is placing himself alongside of God as both the one who has exclusive knowledge of God and the one who has the exclusive right and authority to reveal God to people. To to introduce them, if you will, to cause them to understand and to come to know Christ. This is In theological terms, the doctrine of election, he's speaking about the sovereign sovereign will of God, the sovereign freedom of God, the sovereign choice that God has to choose certain individuals to whom he miraculously reveals himself, gives them the ability to know him. And it is all by his initiative. And if he doesn't choose to reveal God to them, there's no way that they can know him. That's the point. No one knows God except the Son. There's no way that you, by your own philosophical reasoning, by your own sort of musings in your heart, there's no way that you are ever going to know God or figure out God or find your way to God by your own resources. Impossible. As he says in John He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Him. And so Jesus is essentially saying the same thing here. He's praising God for both hiding the truth from the proud and revealing it to those who've come to see the bankruptcy of their own heart and their own resources. And then He declares that He is the one who has the exclusive access to God And he's the one who has the exclusive authority to reveal God. It's only to those whom he chooses to receive this access through himself who come to know God. While so many in their their own pride would, would hate to think of the operations of God in this way, they would despise the thought that they would be dependent on God they would accuse God even of some sort of injustice whenever they realize that everything is dependent on him, that there's no way that they can manipulate or force or 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 somehow reason their way into heaven apart from Christ. While they would reject that, it is just further testimony of their own pride and their own rebellion against God. They They do not see their utter and absolute dependence on him. And Jesus finds this kind of utter sovereignty from God as a cause of praise, as a further extension of the way that God is working out his salvation in such a way that it debases the pride of man, exalts the glory of God, and magnifies the humble. It's really a reflection of God's glory. As He revealed His glory to Moses in Exodus 33, I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'll show compassion on whom I'll show compassion. Or in Exodus 34, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Those kinds of of statements strike people with a profound conundrum, some sort of impossible paradox here. They find themselves asking, how can he be a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin And at the same time, by no means clears the guilty or leaves them unpunished. How can that be? They they read those kinds of things. They begin to try to untwist all of this dilemma in their mind. They begin to think that there's some sort of missing piece to the puzzle, some sort of element that's been left out that if they could just sort of figure it out and insert it, then they'll be able to kind of Undo what they perceive to be the chaos of that kind of statement. There must be some missing element, they tell themselves, that would allow God to make these kinds of distinctions. Something that would allow Him to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin for one person and for another person by no means clear their guilt. The one is going to show mercy to the other. He's going to show condemnation. And so they begin to speculate and reason in their minds, what is it that God finds that allows him to make these kinds of distinctions? And in essence, they're trying to save God from what they consider to be a moral dilemma that is stated about his character. But all of these statements are simply affirming the glory of God. That's what Moses had to understand. That's what Jesus understood, that his mercy and his grace have no cause external to himself. Nothing outside of himself that causes him to either save or not save. We look outside of God and we ask what causes God to decide to have mercy and forgive a man's sin. It had to be something external to him. It has to be maybe man's man's faith or man's character or man's humility or whatever it might be. But God says, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. That is his divine prerogative. To forgive whomever he forgives, to show mercy to whomever, whomever he shows mercy. That kind of statement, of course, is circular. It's an assertion that depends on nothing outside of itself itself. A statement that justifies itself, we might say, but this is exactly who God is. He doesn't depend on anything outside of himself. As he says to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses asked his name, he responds, you may remember, by saying, I am that I am. That that in itself is a circular statement. I exist because I exist. I don't depend on anything outside of myself to exist. That is the glory of God, the independence of God, the freedom of God. Well, here in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is praising God for that same kind of self-determination, that same kind of freedom, so that when God works and when God saves, it absolutely abases any kind of human pride, and it is all because of God's sovereign electing choice. It is Him who reveals God, and it does not come from any man's intellect, from any man's musing, from any man's philosophical ways. And this undermines those who would ever believe that they could place their faith in their own wisdom, that they could rely ultimately on their own understanding. In terms of God's mercy towards men, we, we, we call this the unconditional election of God. Election refers to God's choice the choice God makes of whom will receive his uh, his his forgiveness unconditional refers to the fact that this choice is not based on any qualification any condition in any individual that he forgives so ultimately there are there are conditions that we have that we're born with in the sense that we are all born in sin, we're all born in rebellion, we're all born in pride, but it is God who overcomes that pride and reveals himself to us, bringing us to a place of humility, renunciation of all of our own wisdom, all of our own devices, and those who come to him are those then who come Having come to know God by His grace and totally apart from anything in themselves, they renounce themselves and come to Him. This, all of this is a cause of praise for Christ. And He, He doesn't find this as some sort of, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, reason for consternation. He doesn't find this some sort of reason for for accusation against God. He finds this for a reason of delight. He knows this is God working out his plan, his sovereign plan, doing it exactly the way he wants to do it in a way that absolutely debases all human hubris. And it's a comfort for him. It's a comfort for him, even as he's having to grapple with this rejection from the pride and the arrogance and the human self-sufficiency of all these people, it is a comfort for him in the midst of rejection. If God's to have a plan of salvation that strikes at the very heart of sin, which is pride, he has to have a plan that leaves absolutely nothing for which the sinner can boast, including even his choice to come to Christ. So Jesus very clearly Says no one knows who the Father is, except anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Those cities that Jesus had denounced in the verses just prior to this, twenty through twenty-four, they weren't lacking in information. They weren't lacking in in knowledge. In fact, they had more information about Christ than anyone in history. They had seen Him in the flesh. They had watched His life. They had seen His miracles. They had Jesus and everything that he was uh, completely spelled out to them in his teaching and in his character and all those things, and yet they still would not see and would not believe. It was not an issue of inadequate information. It was not an issue of inadequate revelation. It was not an issue of anything except for their own hard-heartedness on display. And yet God, in his graciousness, chooses to reveal himself to some who do come to him. And this is the only possible way they could come to him, because the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, this is perfectly consistent with everything the scripture tells us. John 1, verse 12, Says to them, He gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, right from the very beginning, John tells us in his gospel that those who come and become the children of God are there not because of their own will, but because of the will of God. Romans 9, so then it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who shows mercy. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Over and over again, the Scripture tells us that this is the necessary work of God if we're going to be in Christ. All of this, Jesus says, was God's plan from the beginning, and it was well pleasing in his sight and he rejoices in it he rejoices in it it brings him delight it brings him praise It causes, it fills his heart with thanksgiving that god has so devised such a plan of salvation so his first expression if you will of grace and humility in facing this rejection is to recognize the glory of God's sovereign election through it. That the rejection that he's seeing would be the rejection of every single person born in this world were it not for God's grace. Every single person who's ever lived would be just as hard-hearted as Capernaum, just as resistant as Bethsaida, just as, just as uh, uh, dismissive and indifferent as Chorazin, they would all respond to the miracles of Christ, the person of Christ, the teaching of Christ exactly the same way. Because it's not ultimately those external things that cause us to believe. It is the will of God to make himself known to those that he chooses to make himself known to. Well, there's a second Expression here of His grace and humility in the face of this rejection. And it's in verse 28 through 30 when Jesus when Jesus offers rest to those weary of their burdens. Again, this is remarkable. It's remarkable that even after just affirming that all of this is dependent on the sovereign electing work of God in our, our hearts for us to even come to know Him, still... In verse 28, he gives this compelling, gracious, uninhibited, extensive call. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He sees absolutely no conflict with the praise and the prayer that he just offered about God's electing work and this extensive universal call for anyone to come who was feeling the burden, who was feeling the weight of this life and their guilt and their sin. And so he makes this call, his offer, for all of those people to come to him. Even those continuing to resist in their pride, the offer stands, the offer is extended. Come and I will give you rest. It's an invitation to those who are willing to admit their weariness, they're willing to admit their fatigue, a weariness brought about by the guilt of their sinful lifestyle, a weariness of trying to prove to everyone that you're okay, a willing—a weariness that comes when inside your heart is dark and the battle with your conscience is wearing you down. This is ultimately what brings people to the Lord. When they finally get to the point, they admit that they're carrying this enormous burden that they cannot get relief from. They've worn themselves out trying to deny God and deny His truth. They've worn themselves out trying to make themselves feel better about their their guilt and their sin. They've worn themselves out trying to lie and cover it up to people around them. They've worn themselves out trying to justify themselves to others. They've worn themselves out trying to justify themselves to God. They've wearied themselves trying in all of their might to find some sort of peace of mind. As someone I heard say this week, we're, we're very good, we're not very good at confession, but we're very good at rationalization. We, we, we spend an inordinate amount of times uh, uh, in our own heart and in our own conversation, we spend an extensive amount of time trying constantly to explain away our shameful conduct. And it is burdensome. It is wearying to do such a thing. And the longer you go, the more time passes, the more you feel yourself drowning in the, in the sort of soul-crushing experience of that task until finally you start to see that it is your pride that's causing you to sink further and further down. And you hear Jesus give this invitation, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He gives you that invitation and he gives you two key motivations to respond to it. The first is because of who he is. He says, take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul. So here he describes his heart for us. It's a heart that he says is gentle and lowly. That is to say the heart of Christ is anything but harsh. It's not callous. It's not unkind. It's not, it's not irritable. It's not unreasonable. It's not any of those things. And the point of all this is for Jesus to say that my heart, that me in myself, I am completely accessible. I am completely understanding to everything that you're going through, to all the things that you've thought in your heart and mind about all the struggles and difficulties of your life. I understand all of those things. I All of those things are the burdens and the weight and the pain and all that stuff that I'm inviting you to bring to me. I am completely approachable. You don't even have to unburden yourself. You don't even have to clean up your act. You you can bring all of that stuff directly to him. In fact, it is your burden, it is your weariness that actually qualifies you to come. So you come and he promises that he will remove all of that burden and he will give you rest. Now, the mechanism for giving you rest is a little shocking because he says it's going to be a yoke. He says, I'm going to give you rest. You take my yoke upon you. We know what a yoke is. It's this sort of wooden apparatus that you would fasten to the neck of some sort of animal, a beast of burden. It might be used to hang baskets from the side to carry loads or maybe even strap them to some sort of cart or a plow or some other, uh, some, some other instrument that they would pull behind them. Jesus is saying he will give you rest and he's going to do it by giving you a yoke. But it's an unusual yoke, he says. It's an easy yoke. That that sounds a little strange. We don't normally in our own day speak uh, this way, use this kind of language, but it would have been very familiar to those in the first century because rabbis would use the language of yoke Uh, yokes to describe their relationship to their trainees, to their pupils, to their followers. You would yoke yourself or attach yourself to a teacher, as it were, or more specifically, you would attach yourself to their teaching, to their doctrine. And this is exactly what Jesus is calling for you to do. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This was a yoke of instruction. More specifically, a yoke of submission. Uh, That's what the yoke represented. It represented a way to subdue the powers of an animal, to direct them in order to accomplish a task, to carry some load, to pull some object. So Jesus is inviting you to lay down your burdens and to place your neck in His teaching. Yield your heart to it. Submit yourself to its direction. Walk in obedience to it. And this is actually the pathway to rest. People in their desperation turn from their sin and give their life to Jesus with a willingness like that, letting Him take control of their entire lives. What they find is they aren't weighed down with some impossible laws. They aren't weighed down with some sort of... uh, enormous expectation that they can never fulfill. They aren't weighed down with anything. This is actually the kind of burden that unburdens. He says it's a yoke that's easy. It may be attached to some task. It may be attached to some demand or some commandment, but it's not a burden that weighs you down. And this is sort of the second sort of motivation that he's using to call you. The first is his own heart, his own person. The second is the kind of attachment that he's calling you to, the kind of burden that he's calling you to. It's an unburdening burden. It doesn't crush you like the burdens that you bear right now. It doesn't oppress you. It doesn't cause you to feel the sinking feeling that you have right now. It doesn't plunge you into the darkness like you are right now. It's a burden that is, can only be described as light. It's no more of a burden on your back than a parachute is a burden to you when you're tumbling to your death. It's not a burden because you're not carrying the weight of any of this. Jesus is carrying all of it for you. The burden to find peace is gone because he delivers peace. The burden to find security is gone because he secures you forever. The burden to find love is gone because He fills you with His love. The burden to cleanse your heart and conscience is gone because He cleanses us. Now you no longer have any of those burdens. You simply pull in the direction that you find Him pushing you. This is kind of what John says in 1 John 5, 3. He says, this is... For this is the love of God, he says, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, because God fills us with his love or a love for him and his gracious heart, because of all that, if we love him, the expression of that love is going to be keeping his commandments. If you love somebody, you love doing the things that you can in tangible ways to show them that love. And the tangible expression is that you're going to want to do what they desire. You're going to want to do what brings them delight. You're going to want to do what brings uh, joy to their heart. And what brings joy to the heart of Christ is His commandments. And so true discipleship results in true love for Christ. And true love for Christ results in true obedience. And it always pushes the will of the person in that direction. You're eager to do the things that Christ commands. And so John says, His commandments, therefore, are not burdensome. This is the the evidence of someone who truly has renounced all of their pride and renounced all of their own self-sufficiency and renounced all of their resistance and renounced uh, all of their Uh, sort of uh, wisdom of this world. They come and their whole life now is taken up with resting in Christ, with pleasing and loving Him. And they find that He begins to direct their hearts in His ways. They are not pulling. They are being pushed. They're delighting in Him. And so doing His commandments aren't burdensome at all, John says. By the way, you hear this Repeated throughout the scripture. David says in Psalm 119, he celebrates as much as anywhere this kind of heart attitude towards God's commandments. He says, In your, uh, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Psalm 119, verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than the honey to my mouth. Or in verse 54, your statutes have been my songs. Warren Wearsby says this. He says, imagine turning God's laws into songs. Suppose a local symphony presented an evening of the traffic codes set to music, he said. Most of us do not consider law as a source of joyful song, but this is exactly the way the psalmist looked at the law of God because he understood that the way that it ordered his life, the way that it ordered the world, the way that it resulted in peace and harmony and joy and delight and rest, all of those things wind up being sources of delight for him, so that he wants to sing about them. This is the law of God to the true believer. This is why it 's not a burden to him; He delights in it this freeing romans six seventeen Thanks be to God, but that though you were slaves of sin, you have become obedient to the heart, and having been freed from sin you've become slaves of righteousness. We have found God's laws while we yoke ourselves to them to actually be freeing. It's as burdensome on our back as a helium balloon. It lifts us and carries us so that we rise above all the hopelessness and despair of this world because that's what His teaching does. And so Jesus is still Still in his grace, after all the rejection, after all the pride, after all the resistance, still extending his heart and his mind to those who have turned from him again and again and again. And he is pleading with them. Come. Come. Put the burden of my teaching on your back and what you'll find is it is no burden. It is a relief to your weary soul. This is a gracious Savior. This is a Savior that you might have resisted day after day, week after week, month after month, up until even now. This is the Savior that you have spurned, that you have con- condemned, that you have ridiculed, that you have mocked. This is the Savior that you've resisted. And yet, He's still calling. He's still pleading. Lay down the pride of your resistance. Lay down the arrogance of your own wisdom. Lay all those burdens aside. Place your neck in the yoke of his teaching and find that it is rest for your soul. Tremendous picture into the heart of Christ. Hopefully, it's a heart that you'll flee to for salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for this and thankful for these precious words of our Savior. We're thankful for your glory, that though we all were born in this kind of pride and rebellion and resistance, that you... You took it upon yourself to come to us. You took it upon yourself to bow, if you will, your ear close to hear our cries. You took it upon yourself to bear our burdens on the cross. You took it upon yourself even to open up our blind eyes, to break the heart of pride, that is within us and to bring us to a place of humility you took it upon yourself to do all of those things when we had no ability to do it ourselves no worthiness no reason to compel you to do it at all but you were so kind and so gracious and so merciful indeed this is a cause of praise it's a cause of thanksgiving because it so pleased you to show so much grace. It'll be our delight through all of our days to both serve you and praise you for your kindness. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen.